Testing. How's that? Good. Life Vow Sashin, January 2024. Talk to. a poem by William Stafford called Ask Me. Sometime when the river is ice, ask me mistakes I have made. Ask me whether what I have done is my life. Others have come in their slow way into my thought. And some have tried to help or to hurt. Ask me what difference their strongest love or hate has made. I will listen to what you say. You and I can turn and look at the silent river and wait. We know the current is there, hidden. And there are comings and goings from miles away that hold the stillness exactly before us. What the river says that is what I say. Good afternoon, everyone. Both here and those participating remotely, thank you for being present, your presence and your practicing. So the purpose of this talk is to look at causes and conditions, karma, and how it shapes us and has shaped us, and particularly our own lineage. And we'll explore some aspects of vow, inherited vows, reactive vows, inspired vows. If there's any overall admonition in the vows work we are doing, it can be summed up with a phrase that the Quakers use, which is, let your life speak. Sometime when the river is ice, ask me mistakes I have made. Ask me whether what I have done is my life. Others have come in their slow way into my thought, and some have tried to help or to hurt. Ask me what difference their strongest love or hate has made. I will listen to what you say. You and I can turn and look at the silent river and wait. We know the current is there, hidden, and there are comings and goings from miles away that hold the stillness exactly before us. What the river says that is what I say. Let your life speak. We do this by sitting at the silent river in the container of Sashin. We open to the silence and stillness that is also alive and dynamic. Shoto Harada Roshi says, Life is the original vow. 
Life, life is the original vow. And we can see this in that, just look around us, life wants to live. It's amazing what pops up between the cracks and pavement. But beyond the material, the biological, what is life? As we explore life vows, there's the what is vow, what is that for us, but also what is life? So what is your life? What is my life? What is this life? What is this? What is this? So there are different facets of this life, of course. Life is this breathing body. Feeling it right now. Life is the heartbeat. Life is this body reverberating with sounds, spacious, inside and out, boundless, boundaryless. This body in stillness, this body in motion. And of course, this is our zazen. We attune to this aspect of life. We remember (laughs) this life, this part of life, this breathing, dynamic, miraculous body. It's more than just water, carbon, minerals. What something, something moves through this life. And we can look directly and see that. That's one of the aspects. So that's why to do this as a sashin. So we can attune to that part of what is life. But we're more than just a breathing body sitting here. There's karma and interconnection. As Hogan said, we are in his talk, we are embedded in a field. We are not separate. This life is embedded in a field of causes and conditions. It's what we call karma. We are not separate, isolated individuals, but are part of a network of relationships, part of a network of interactions and interactivity. Interactions, interactivity, interbeing, as Thich Nhat Hanh says. So this aspect is also important in terms of discerning vow. How, where are we embedded in space and time? So in Buddhism, we have an image of this, Indra's net. which is a way of illustrating our embeddedness. 
this embeddedness that is one jewel. So from, uh, this is an explanation from Francis Cook. So far away in the heavenly abode of the great god Indra, there is a wonderful net which has been hung by some cunning artificer in such a manner that it stretches out indefinitely in all directions in accordance with the extravagant tastes of deities. This artificer has hung a single glittering jewel at the net's every node. And since the net itself is infinite in dimension, the jewels are infinite in number. There hang the jewels, glittering like stars of the first magnitude, a wonderful sight to behold. If we now arbitrarily select one of these jewels for inspection, like maybe the jewel sitting on your zabutan, If we arbitrarily select one of these jewels for inspection and look closely at it, we will discover that in its polished surface there are reflected all the other jewels in the net, infinite in number. Not only that, but each of the jewels reflected in this one jewel is also reflecting all the other jewels, so that the process of reflection is infinite. The Huayan school of Buddhism has been fond of this image mentioned many times because it symbolizes a cosmos in which there is an infinitely repeated relationship among all the members of the cosmos. This relationship is said to be one of simultaneous mutual identity and mutual intercausality. So because of because we are embedded in a field we can think of it as this field, Indra's net, one jewel, one inf- jewel in, among infin- infinite jewels. Because we are embedded in a field, we influence and are influential. We are influenced and we are influential. And we aren't in charge of how it all turns out. That's the humbling part. So our vow work that we do here, it's important to remember it isn't trying to find a way to improve ourselves. We aren't trying to find a new standard so that our pusher, our internal pusher, our internal perfectionist, and our inner critic have something to chew on or chew us out about. what we're looking at is what our life already is. What is already moving through us underneath the chattering of the pusher, the perfectionist, the inner critic, all the other different voices. They're of course a part of, but they're not the whole thing. We're looking beyond um, figuring out what's the what's the what's the job we're supposed to do. What's the those are means. 
we're looking at what is moving through us, what is already moving through. So we're looking at what our life already is. As the Quakers say, let your life speak. This is from um, Parker Palmer. An old Quaker. He says the old Quaker saying, let your life speak. I found these words encouraging. He's remembering when he was younger, before he went through a profound depression and then spiritual shift in his life. He said, let your life speak. I found these words encouraging and I thought I understood what they meant. I thought they meant, let the highest truths and values guide you. Live up to those demanding standards in everything you do. This is the the striving. This is the setting a standard that we're trying to meet. This is... um, this is not what, where we're headed. He says, today, some 30 years later, let your life speak means something else to me. A meaning faithful both in ambiguity, ambiguity of the words. Getting older. He says, today, some 30 years later, let your life speak means something else to me. It's a meaning faithful both to the ambiguity of those words and to the complexity of my own experience. So let your life speak to him now means, before you tell your life what you intend to do with it, listen for what it intends to do with you. Before you tell your life what you intend to do with it, listen for what it intends to do with you. Before you tell your life what truths and values you have decided to live up to, let your life tell you what truths you embody and what values you represent. So in the spirit of let your life speak, we looked at some of our day-to-day vows yesterday. So Chosen writes in the vow-powered life, the word vow represents the actual power of a bundle of energy purposely formed, aimed, and propelled through time. Vow represents the actual power of a bundle of energy purposely formed, aimed, and propelled through time. So vows are a bundle of what is already moving through us. What is it? What is moving through us? There may be some vows that we've inherited, and that's what we want to look at now. So inherited vows. So part of our exploration 
and this really is an exploration, is to look at what vows we may have inherited. So first consider our family of origin. And we'll do this in exercises later. We can consider what was or is important to your family, especially your parents or grandparents. Worldly success, good education, respect in the community. And what did they spend time on? Then we can look at the characteristic values or behaviors and see a vow that might underlie that. And then because of karma, there is an effect, perhaps small or large, subtle or strong, on us. And of course, this can include chosen family as well. Not all our family are blood relations. But this is an aspect of looking at our karma, what gifts or influence um, are we nested in? So it was doing this work, this vow work myself, that I realized some of the strongest forces in my life were due to the vows of my ancestors. Before that, I thought that this was just me, you know, that my parents had me, they educated me, and then I went off to seek my fortune, as the fairy tales say, and do my own thing. So an example of this, I'll give a personal example. My father um, went into the Air Force and, and went to Vietnam, the Vietnam War. He was good with mechanical things. Um, so he fixed helicopters. He was part of a crew that fixed helicopters. Actually, when he was a kid growing up, he was 14 years old and bought a Model T Ford um, which was a total piece of junk, and got it to work, and then took it all apart, down to the last screw and nut, and then put it back together and it didn't work. <laughs> so he and his friends took it apart again and put it together and it did work. But I did not get the vow to fix things that are mechanical, that did not move through me, become part of me. So after the war, he, returned, he remained in the Air Force for 20 years, and then he went to work um, for the federal government uh, in the Defense Department, actually, for 30 years. So that's a little bit about his history. And when I was growing up, or before really discerning it, it's like, well, that's, that's my, those were my dad's jobs. But if I look at it, especially now, looking back, I see that the values that he exhibited were public service. He worked in public service, the value of team, and the value of leadership. So the underlying vow in this is to serve others and to lead with integrity, which was something that he really valued. And there's stories about that, that he was really somebody who had a lot of integrity as a somebody who managed people or led people. So its effect on me was that I eventually went into, um, I eventually went into public service, but it was in the form of politics. And then I've always tried to 
um, learn how to be um, a good leader with people. So another, um, another aspect in terms of my family karma is my dad was an alcoholic, um, mostly when I was a teenager. But he eventually uh, started to go to AA, and he started, he did that for many, many years, and then eventually there was some night that the, there, was, there was no meeting. Um, so he and somebody else started a group um, in the, they're like, I think it was Thursday. So there's nobody meeting on Thursday, so he said, I'll do it, I'll just open the door. I'll, um, I'll open the door and we'll have a meeting. So um, eventually that ended up being a meeting of like 100 people would come every Thursday. It was this enormous building. And he did that for decades, um, non-negotiable. He would always show up to open the door. So the underlying vow there is to serve others, to show up, and to support people's spiritual practice um, because AA really is a spiritual program. Um, he also sang in church, um, was part of the part of church. So this effect on me is, <laughs> I look at it now, I look back, well, <laughs> um, one of my early vows um, practicing with the community was that I would always show up on Sunday nights and no matter what. And I kind of made that early vow and I thought that was kind of like my vow. Um, but when I look back, it's, it, there was influence there. I mean, probably more than I know. Uh, so, and then there's family karma for my mother. Um, she was always trying to figure out how to be happy. She read a lot of self-help books. She was very curious about the mind. Um, and she was very. She actually was a very spiritual person, although we didn't talk about it much until sort of the the later years of her life. Um, so I always kind of thought that that my I didn't grow up in a very spiritual household, and so that that was like kind of me. But as I look back, it actually really there was this thing. Um, an influence that I didn't quite understand until much later. And eventually towards the end of her life that um, my mother and I could talk particularly about loving kindness meditation, which she took up as a practice. So in that way, I was an influence on her, right? It is a two-way, it's multiple way. It doesn't just go one direction. So by investigating our inherited karma, we're actually, we're not looking for really, uh, we're looking at just what are these influences. We're not looking for blame or, um, but instead looking at what's influencing, what's reverberating. So not everything is positive, of course. There's always, there's reactive vows. This is the vow of I'll never do that way, never do it that way. <laughs> it's like if, um, if you can't be a good example, you can be a horrible warning. Um, so sometimes we have, you know, it's not all, it's not all fun. Um, and sometimes 
you know, we can think of things that perhaps parents or siblings or in our family did that you really disliked or that was unskillful. Um, so we can we also look and see if there's any reactive vows or responsive vows. Um, vows to not do what they did. Um, so one of those... Um, one of those is being late to things. So I, had a, I took up a reactive vow late in life to, not, to, try, to try not to be late. Um, actually, it was the combination of, of Jomon's vow and mine. She grew up in a family that was always late, and so did I. And so when she was like, we're never going to be late to things, I'm like, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> we were always late. We were never on time to church. I remember one time going to, I was out of town somewhere and I was visiting someone and we went to, I grew up Catholic and we went to mass. So we go in and the mass starts and I kind of, I was like, so this is how it starts. (laughs) I had never seen it in years and years. I had never seen the beginning of mass. (laughs) Yeah. So then, I, one, of, one of the things that happened was is that then this became kind of an overreactive vow, almost like you become allergic. And I noticed that, um, that over time that I became, it went from being a, a vow to, to show up on time to one that became, I became, I noticed a kind of rigidity setting in. And so that was kind of an overreaction to... Um, to it. So that's something else to work on is that my, that reactive vow is like, there's lots of reasons why I, personally I wanted to change that. Um, but it became uh, not so skillful. So I've had to back off. So there's overreactive vow. Reactive vow is not, is not, this isn't a pejorative that says like, you need to get rid of your reactive vows. There's skillful ways to have a reactive vow. Um, you know, for example, if you saw um, if you saw violence in your household growing up, and you say, "I'll never hit my children," that's a reactive vow, which is skillful, right? So, um, so it doesn't. That's not a pejorative. I think that's important to remember. But but just noticing those things. So then, there's also inspired vows. So for inspired vows, we might consider who are people who inspired you to change your life in significant ways. For example, perhaps changing a profession or a shift in how you live, taking up a cause, taking up an art. What qualities did those people inspire in you? What were their vows? Perhaps even though they didn't necessarily articulate it in that way, How were you changed? So we can have inspired vows that might be someone who is an immense historical figure like Martin Luther King Jr. Or we might have somebody who shifted our life in another way. In college, I was gonna be, in college, I was gonna be an academic or a lawyer. Then I, then, um, then I met someone, um, I had an internship registering voters. Um, and then that 
I met, I met somebody who actually was a, an organizer, who was a, an activist, community organizer, and I had no idea that there was that kind of life. Um, that you could, you could, your life could be about that. So I got involved in registering voters, and part of that voter registration is I stood out on a street corner registering people to vote who were going to the unemployment office in downtown St. Louis. Then eventually, as part of this, I ended up um, going and registering voters at an auto plant, uh, working with the union there. And I re we registered um, as many people in one day at the auto plant as I had a whole summer standing out by myself. And so that was the power of being organized, what you could really do when people work together. So this, this person who was going to be a lawyer or a professor ended up being a union organizer for 20 years. That's because I met that one person and then one thing led to another. And then another big shift in my own life is being been inspired by my teachers. Inspired by my teachers to take up the practice of Zen, to look deeply into my own life, my own reactivity, my own um, um, unskillfulness, and look at my own innate awakening and then to do that with other people and then eventually that vow um, led to me sitting on this seat right here moving to the monastery So I feel like I've taken up their vows and they took up my Izumi's vows and that goes back th through time. So part of this embeddedness that we're in is in a, in a lineage. Whether or not you're a Zen Buddhist or a Buddhist or, or not, thinking in terms of lineage can help us as we think about our own vows because that we're embedded in a field in space and time. It can even help us articulate big vows if we think of ourselves in terms of a lineage. So doing, for example, doing social justice work myself was a lot easier when I thought of myself as, I'm just part of a long stream of people who are working for the betterment of people's life. And working with the union, it was trying to make, help people um, have a better life for them and their families, and that there'd be a more just world. But if I saw it as, I need to do this, it's up to me, you kind of get ground down. But if it's, I'm going to do my part in the time that I have here, and then I'll hand it off, it's a lot easier. So we can make bigger vows if we see ourselves as part of a stream. Not like, oh, I need to be the one to end homelessness, if that's your vow. I think that's an amazing vow to make. 
And the other thing is, the bigger the vow, the more places that you can do it. And actually, you do it no matter where you, where, wherever you step. And we also express vows in our own way. So in the Zen lineage, we chant the Zen lineage of ancestors taking up, who took up their vows from their teachers and, and handed it forward. So we join the lineage, but we express it in our own way. We don't do it. We express it in our own way. It moves through our own life because of our own karma. So finally, just a reminder, we aren't trying to become something new, fixing ourselves. We're discovering what's already here. How is life trying to live through us? As Parker Palmer said, before you tell your life what you intend to do with it, listen for what it intends to do with you. So again, William Stafford asked me, Sometime when the river is ice, ask me mistakes I have made. Ask me whether what I have done is my life. Others have come in their slow way into my thought, and some have tried to help or to hurt. Ask me what difference their strongest love or hate has made. I will listen to what you say. You and I can turn and look at the silent river and wait. We know the current is there, hidden, and there are comings and goings from miles away that hold the stillness exactly before us. What the river says, that is what I say. <laughs> 